From the FingerLakes1.com studio in Seneca Falls, this is Inside the Finger Lakes. Today we had a conversation planned with Leslie Danks Burke, and like most things that were planned before March 15th, a lot changed, prompting some significant changes to that planned conversation. Leslie has been on the show before, but she's running for New York State Senate in the Southern Tier. She will challenge Senator Tom O'Mara this fall in the general election in the 58th District. Our conversation covered a lot of ground, but we talked in specific terms about the coronavirus pandemic, New York's response to it, and how it has turned almost everything we're familiar with on its head. We pick up that conversation discussing the moments leading up to the full lockdown and how her campaign was contending with that possibility. fascinating. Uh, when you look at what happens now, how how do you continue campaigning given, given the circumstances? It is very different to all of a sudden be in a position where you're trying to reach voters but can't go visit with people personally. Uh, it sure does make campaigning different. It also is uh, particularly challenging in a region like ours where internet access is uh, paltry, to say the least, for a lot of people. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing that in so many different contexts. We're seeing it in the campaign, but also in the healthcare context, in the education context. Children are trying to get online to be able to do their schoolwork. Uh, people are trying to use telemedicine to meet with their doctors for, you know, whatever 
smaller issues might be treatable uh, over a computer line rather than, than going into hospitals that could be very crowded or, or full of germs. Uh, and those sorts of opportunities are a lot harder for people to take advantage of when the internet is, is as poor as it is in some parts of our region. So we're certainly seeing that on the campaign front, that it is harder to reach people. Uh, we're making every single effort that we can to overcome that, and we're very proud of how many achievements we have had. Uh, we were one of the first campaigns to move an event online. We did that actually before the uh, shelter-in-place orders came down because we kind of saw, saw what was coming and also recognized that there were some public health recommendations out there that, that people should start social distancing even before the regulations came in from the state. So we moved our event online. It turned out to be a, um, a really successful opportunity for people to join through Facebook Live and participate from the comfort of their homes who might not have participated in our event in person. Uh, that was three weeks ago. I think that people are, are less excited about it now, now that we've all been in our houses for two and a half, three weeks. But we sure are seeing uh, as much engagement as, as we could possibly have imagined, given the curveball we've all been thrown. How do you plan, uh, sort of on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis, given how much uncertainty uh, exists right now in terms of how long this might last or, or what kind of restrictions might lift when? How do you go through the campaign process, uh, given that sort of uh, shoddy nature of things right now? Really good question, Josh. And I think that everyone's grappling with this, right? We, we, we know the situation we're in. We just don't know how long it's going to last. And I think from a campaign perspective, you know, we're trying to plan for the worst case scenario. We're trying to be as cognizant as possible that we might be in this fix for a while. And so we need to get our systems up and running so we can reach as many people as possible. And do as much outreach as possible in case this lasts for a while. Uh, and then if it, if it lifts and we're able to get out and visit with people in person, then, then that'll be a great thing, right? We'll be able to take advantage of that. And we'll also have all these digital platforms in place that, that we've put in place to sort of superpower our campaign right now. But I think planning for the worst and hoping for the best is the way anybody gets through a crisis like this. Wash your hands as much as you possibly can, even if you don't think they need it, and, and that'll be even safer. Are you worried at all about turnout, uh, either sort of looking forward at, at, the, at the primaries and the special elections that are now going to be happening throughout the state in June, or even come you know general election time when there's probably still going to be some uncertainty connected to this issue and how comfortable people are getting uh, getting in groups of, of, frankly, probably any size. I am very worried about turnout. And uh, our democracy is very important to maintain, even in a pandemic. Uh, there are lots of ways that we can make sure people have the opportunity to vote uh, without putting themselves in harm's way. Thank goodness New York State already put in early voting opportunities. So we can certainly space out the time that people are showing up to vote. If we do get into a situation where people are going to the polls uh, and voting, we can space it out over a longer period of time. They won't all be crowding the polls on one particular day. Uh, there's also opportunities for 
you know, obviously moving things online, doing things by mail. Uh, people can apply for absentee ballots. And I think that all of those options really need to be looked at very carefully so that we are planning in advance so that we don't have a crisis and we don't lose, uh, you know, what is so very dear to us as Americans is our opportunity to have a voice in our government. Uh, we, we can't lose our opportunity to vote because of this health crisis. In fact, our voices are even more important now. We need to all pull together and, and discuss and decide together how we're going to get through this. And one, one opportunity that might happen is that because people are home and they're online and they're, you know, looking for things maybe to occupy their time a little bit, one optimistic possibility is that people will be looking for a way to vote. I'm wondering what's happening with the census, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing so many people post that they have filled out the census. Maybe people are going through their mail and, and checking off things on their to-do list that they otherwise would have been too busy to do if they were going about their normal routine. Yeah, it is, that is a very, very good question. Um, has this shifted at all uh, the issues that you're hearing uh, voters bring to you as, as major concerns for them he heading through this particular election cycle? You know, Josh, it hasn't, and that's so interesting to me. The problems that we had before this pandemic are the same problems that we still have. They're just in really stark relief. Let's take health care, for example, and the fact that in our rural communities, it's sometimes hard for people to drive long distances to get to the doctor. Uh, our rural hospitals are underfunded. We don't have enough nurses. All of those are challenges that we're seeing in really heightened relief here uh, in the coronavirus crisis. Same thing with the lack of internet access. Uh, people who live in communities where there isn't internet access because the companies have not followed their responsibilities and their obligations and have not put out the internet that they were supposed to do, uh, those people are in even worse shape than they were before this coronavirus crisis hit, but they were in bad shape then too. Uh, let's look at education and, and how disparate the education is across our region. Uh, some schools get more money than other schools. It's no child's fault where a child gets born, but goodness knows that, you know, it really can affect a kid's education where they end up going to school and, and whether that school had the resources to fully provide for all the children. That is a problem that we're seeing in so much greater magnitude now with the coronavirus crisis because School buses are having to travel around and deliver meals to children. They're delivering Chromebooks. They're delivering Chromebooks to children who live in houses uh, and homes that, that don't have Internet access. And what are those children going to do when they, when they get back to school six or eight weeks from now and can't, uh, you know, can't keep up with their fellow classmates? So every single issue that we were concerned about, uh, this, this challenge of how our community has, has a real divide and, and it's getting left behind, those same challenges are there now even stronger. And we got to step up and face them. Our sort of honing in on, on education a little bit, um, are you concerned about the funding side of, of some of these districts uh, who, who don't really have, maybe they've already been a little bit uh, behind the eight ball because of the funding model that's been used for the last decade, but now uh, we're hearing Governor Cuomo say that, you know, 10, 15, maybe more billion dollars shortfall. 
uh, in terms of uh, the budget when this thing is all said and done, uh, and schools would very likely be affected by that. What is is that a concern, and how how do you think that is something that the the state should probably start, even though we're in the middle of a crisis, start to think about how or what that solution is going to look like? I have no patience with balancing the budget on the backs of our children. That is, that's a ridiculous direction to go down. Uh, let's take a look at the facts, Josh. We pay some of the highest taxes in the country, and so the money is there, right? Uh, we also have a lot of very wealthy taxpayers who aren't paying the same tax rates as the rest of us. We have a lot of businesses, uh, very, very large businesses that have a negative effective tax rate. In, in the end, they get money back from the government. I'm not talking about our small local businesses around here. I'm talking about, you know, hedge funders and people who make their money off of capital gains. They're they're paying less than zero in taxes. We've got to straighten out that system so that the people who have the most are not paying less than the rest of us. That's where we need to look to solve these problems in education. It is not by cutting our children's education. And to that end, uh, another year, we have a budget of some kind. I'm not exactly sure what that totally looks like uh, in Albany, but there, there is, will be a budget. Uh, what are your concerns now, given what this particular budget process looked like uh, in Albany, given that it was sort of in crisis mode? It, it looked like uh, two legislative chambers that, frankly, were completely unprepared for uh, even the prospect of having to, you know, uh, remote vote or, or sort of uh, debate things uh, away from the Capitol building? We had a supposed crisis in the budget uh, before we got to the coronavirus problem. There was, there was a supposed shortfall in Medicaid uh, before we even got here that a lot of folks were talking about. And my solution to that was let's start handling Medicaid the same way every other state in the country handles Medicaid and cut our property taxes so that our property taxes are not paying for the Medicaid program. No other state in the country does it that way. And it sends our property taxes through the roof. And, and frankly, uh, those of us who, who live in communities that you know have pretty high property taxes just can't afford it. That was a conversation that was happening before we got to the budget, uh, and Medicaid is a, a continuing conversation with the budget. We now have uh, an argument back and forth between New York State and the federal government about where those Medicaid funds are going to go when, when they get here. I am adamantly of the opinion that we cannot push any more of those costs down to the counties and down to our individual taxpayers. The taxes are just backbreaking at this point. There are solutions to this. There, there are actually pretty simple solutions to this. One of the simple solutions is to look at the 20 subcontractors with Medicaid, some of which are for-profit corporations that are making money off of our property taxes going into the Medicaid program that then gets sent to these, these private subcontractors, and deciding as a state that we don't want to have our property taxes go to pad the profits of corporations. We don't want to do it that way. Instead, we want to move to a single-payer system for Medicaid so that, uh, you know, it, it reduces the property tax burden on all of us and it, it uh, you know, cuts the middleman out. 
I think that's a direction that we have the opportunity to go right now, and I, I wish that we'd be looking at cost-saving solutions like that that reduce all of our taxes, get these unfunded mandates off of our backs, and also make the program more efficient. Uh, just a few days ago, NYSEC... And, and you asked me about the budget, and I talked about Medicaid, but you know, Medicaid is, is a huge chunk of the budget. I think right. that most recently, what is it, $76 billion dollars in our Medicaid program. So, so you fix the Medicaid piece of it and you've really addressed a huge chunk of the budget. And like you said, there were concerns about how New York State was going to fix the Medicaid problem and a lot of counties, uh, including NYSAC, voiced their own concerns. And now with, with the pandemic uh, on top of that, uh, NYSAC just a couple days ago said that they were uh, concerned, frankly, for, for some counties having to deal with being on the brink of bankruptcy when this thing is all said and done. Uh, is Are you worried about that, especially being in the southern tier where things um, have, have probably not improved as much as uh, some folks in Albany like to uh, suggest that they have over the last five to ten years? Absolutely. Well, Elmira was just identified by USA Today as one of only two cities in the entire country that hasn't come out of recession since 2008. There's only two cities in the whole country, and Elmira is one of those. So my question is, if our property taxes are the highest in the country, uh, and everywhere else has managed to figure out a way out of recession, then... What's up with the leadership in Albany that is leaving Elmira out? That people in Elmira are not any less well-deserving. They're not any less bright. Uh, they have just as much initiative and work ethic as anywhere else. Uh, it, that's a lack of leadership. And what we need to do is start holding the folks who are supposed to be representing the Southern Tier region to account and saying, look, other, other areas have been able to figure out how to solve this problem. Uh, how come the money isn't coming back to the southern tier in the way that it's going to other places? I really call my opponent, uh, Senator Tom O'Meara, on the carpet for that one. He's been there for 10 years. He's complained about it a lot, but I sure don't see that he's gotten anything done. Yeah, in, in when you sort of look at, at the district as a whole, uh, is what are sort of the, the big opportunity areas that you think, you know, could quickly sort of see improvement if there if there were um, as you're suggesting, uh, different uh, representation in Albany? I think we need to focus on small businesses and local businesses. Uh, it, you know, it, it might feel nice to have a big ribbon cutting with a big, huge corporation coming in and bringing a lot of jobs, but those are very, very few and far between. Uh, it's nice when they happen, but really what we need to do is focus on the hard work of helping the 60% of us who work for small local businesses. Uh, that's that's really, it's hard to make sure that you're getting the resources to all those individual employers and employees, uh, but that's that's what the real work is. We need to cut regulations, cut uh, red tape so that small businesses are able to compete. We need to tailor our, our business uh, development programs to specific industries that they're in. What's going to work for a local organic farm is very, very different from what's going to work for, you know, a, a robot manufacturer that makes three or four robots a year but employs seven people. Uh, you need to just make sure that you're targeting specific industry groups and really tailoring uh, resources and you know we could provide lawyers to small businesses so that they don't have to 
waste their time with uh, legal regulations and instead can be doing whatever their business is good at doing. It always feels good to have a big, huge ribbon cutting with a big, huge company that's going to come in and provide a whole bunch of jobs, but that doesn't happen as often, and, and we need to do the hard work of building up our local businesses. Mm-hmm. Are, are you worried at all, given the circumstances right now, about any of the small businesses that, that maybe have been supporting your campaign along the way or the folks who run some of these businesses and work in these businesses um, about their ability to continue uh, operating beyond uh, this, uh, this shutdown that we're in right now? Very, very worried. I have spoken with business owners all across district. So to be clear, I'm running for a five-county district that stretches from Yates County all the way down to Steuben and then across over to Tompkins, Chemung, and and has Schuyler County in the middle. And I have spoken with business owners all across those five counties uh, who are in all kinds of different response patterns. Some of them have furloughed their employees. Some of them have laid them off entirely. Some of them are keeping their employees on and working from home. Uh, But across the board, they're worried that they could sustain this for a month, maybe, maybe two months. But if this keeps up, they're going to go out of business. Now, what does that look like, Josh? Let's say that in one little storefront after another, in town after town, the storefront suddenly shuts down. And and you have suddenly on Main Street, 10 businesses that were doing okay and thriving there six months ago are no longer there. Well, that rebounds back on the landlord's. And the landlords can't find tenants for those buildings because Mm -hmm. in order to find a tenant, you've got to find 10 more little entrepreneurs who are willing to start up businesses and do that hard work of getting something started up. That would be so hard to recover from. That is much harder to recover from than the cost would be to figure out loan programs and grant programs that keep these small businesses going through this pandemic. If we lose them entirely, they will be so hard to recreate. We have to make sure that we're figuring out programs that sustain them through this so that all that work that they've done to get their businesses up and running is not lost. The governor says that we will deal with the economy after this is over. Uh, How does that make you feel, given how clearly personal this is for those small business owners and the folks who are are in some of these communities that maybe aren't feeling um, the the impact of this pandemic the way folks are, say, in New York City or Rochester or Syracuse or Ithaca? Look, the governor's job right now is to get our state through this crisis. And as the chief executive of the state, I think he's showing remarkably good leadership in a crisis and, and navigating every single turn of this pretty well. I don't think that the governor means we're not going to pay attention to these problems right now. I think he means we're going to focus really hard on navigating the crisis and we're going to you know, resolve these economic problems when we can. Uh, it, I would certainly be opposed to any idea that you know we, we just put all of our economic woes on the back burner and, until until you know they hit us in the head because they're going to they're, they're going to be there we've we've got to see around the curve and be ready for what's coming next that said we have a major health pandemic we're dealing with yeah. and the governor is absolutely right to be focusing on keeping people alive it, it, 
one of the questions that we've seen pop up repeatedly, especially with with the governor uh, mentioning the the uh, potential budget shortfall that that'll exist after uh, this pandemic has has passed and, and New York starts to recover. What position will Albany or the state even be in to lend a helping hand to some of these uh, small businesses if they if they are themselves behind the eight ball in a big way? Once again, I get back to the idea that we are the richest state in the country and one of the richest countries in the world. There's money there. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out a way to get that money to the people who need it most. Who needs it the most? The people who are doing most of the working and living <laughs> and, <laughs> and producing around here, which are the, the local businesses and the people who work for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the real engine of any rural economy. You know, it. It might be different in a big city, you know, I don't, I don't know, but here in our five counties where we have small cities and rural communities, what we need to focus on is getting funds directly to uh, the local businesses and their employees, making sure that everyone has the health care that they need. I'm, I'm very much in favor of a single-payer system. <laughs> Anyone who comes through this uh, coronavirus crisis and, and doesn't understand the need for a single-payer system, I'm, I'm going to really uh, question what they're reading. But we need to get to a system so that our local businesses are not charged with providing health care for most of us, and uh, they're able to make an income going forward that allows people to live. To that end, uh, it seems that this pandemic has pretty much exposed every part of the healthcare system. Obviously, the, the actual cost of going to get medical services is one thing, but it also seems like we have missed the ball in terms of being able to uh, have the proper infrastructure in place in the healthcare space. Uh, as an example, 3,000 ICU beds in a state of 19.4 million people to the average person, that math just seems really, really bad. Um, is this a wake-up call for New York State to start investing in sort of the fundamentals again, not just as a, as a single-payer or, or that type of healthcare system, but also the physical parts of our healthcare system and and our infrastructure too. Yeah, it's absolutely a wake up call. Uh, when we talk about infrastructure, we're not just talking about uh, you know the physical plant of hospitals, which obviously needs an investment in, and, and as you mentioned, hospital beds. We're also talking about the resources inside those hospitals. Uh, now that healthcare in America is so commodified and it, it is so driven by corporate profits. Uh, hospitals don't keep huge reserves of medicines and, and you know, small uh, devices that they might need on their shelves. They buy them as they need them. Well, we're seeing a real challenge with that approach now, uh, the, the fact that hospitals have not been able to afford to keep that sort of supply on hand is really catching up with us now. So we need to look at the infrastructure piece from a physical plant perspective and also from a pipeline perspective, right? From getting the supply chain directly to hospitals so that they have the resources they need to serve patients. And in, in my view, uh, when hospitals and healthcare became a commodified industry where people are making money off of sick people, uh, you know, companies make more money, the more people are sick, uh, that's backwards. We should, uh, we should switch to a system where we're incentivizing health and where we're keeping our supply chain fulfilled so that we can prepare for a crisis like this. 
And my last question for you is you move forward move forward, what uh, what types of, of events or sort of virtual events are you putting on to uh, connect with uh, with the folks in the, in the uh, district down there? Thanks, Josh. We, we are loving uh, the various opportunities that there are to connect with people. I, I have to say, um, we are really in challenging times, but one of the assets is that I get to see face-to-face uh, people that I might have only just talked with on the phone or, or might not have come in contact with uh, because we simply never met up with each other at a, at a meeting. We're doing a lot of uh, conversations by Zoom. Uh, we're doing Google Meetup, Google Hangout. Uh, we're, I, my children use FaceTime all the time. They're trying to convince me that that's the best way to communicate, although it only works for people with, with uh, iPhone or, you know, iDevice, not for folks on Android. Uh, but using all of those tools at our disposal, as long as you can get to a place where there's actually service, uh, it really allows an opportunity for connection that we, we just weren't really utilizing a few weeks ago. So I'm seeing a real asset there. Uh, I hope that we keep this going even when it's not the only way we communicate anymore because it, it does open up the opportunity to reach people who – you know, maybe wouldn't have come out to an event or maybe wouldn't have gotten on the phone with me, but are are interested in, in having a face-to-face over the computer. Thanks for listening or watching. Inside the FLX is a production of FingerLakes1.com Digital Media. It's presented by FL1 News and hosted by me, Josh Durso. New episodes are released on demand each week on FingerLakes1.com or the FingerLakes1.com app.